This weekend, as we continue in our series, Joy in the Journey in the book of Philippians, we come to chapter 3, and it's here that Paul reminds us again to find our joy in Jesus. And he reminds us that there are joy builders and joy robbers. The joy robber of legalism that thrusts us into these prisons of performance where we trade God's incredible gift of grace for our good works and we start trying to earn uh, our way. And so you and I need to be asking the question, why does it matter if we walk and follow the Lord or legalism? Because the Lord is the only one that can bring joy into your life. Legalism will bring not only sorrow, but it will bring sin. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we will listen to Jesus, the joy builder, and and stop listening to these joy robbers. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault." It's here that Paul doesn't just give us counsel. He starts with comforting counsel. Now, why would he need to give us comforting counsel? Well, notice that he starts by talking to the dearly loved brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, we're confronted with this idea. How are we taking care of or treating our spiritual siblings? Do you see other believers as dear, as important, as cherished? Do you have a concern for them? But you notice here, as he refers to them as dear brothers and sisters, and he tells us to rejoice in the Lord, he says, rejoice whatever happens. The reason you and I need comforting counsel here is because Paul makes it clear that we are going to go through hard and hurtful things in this life. Here's the good news. You can have joy even in the midst of junk because your joy is not tied to your circumstances. It is tied to Jesus Christ. Our problem is we tend to make joy situational. We make it based on our situation instead of our Savior, and so we are good with having joy in the good times, but not in the groaning times. You see, what we do is we base our joy on the season that we're going through. And if we're going through a good season, we can have joy. If we're going through a hard season, well, I just can't have joy. And so what we do is we gravitate to living for the good times instead of living for God. And Paul is warning us here because you and I can spend our lives orientating our whole life to trying to find happiness instead of orientating our whole life towards him. 
It's not about living for the good times. It is about living for God and for his truth. What happens when we orientate our lives towards Jesus and we rejoice in Jesus? Well, all of a sudden, we shift our focus off of our problems and onto his presence. So can I ask you, what do you have to rejoice in when it comes to your relationship with Jesus? Right now, currently, whatever your circumstances are, as you think to what God has done in your past, as you think to the cross of Calvary, that moment that, that you accepted Christ's finished work on the cross, you went from being a sinner to being a saint, from heading to hell to having a home in heaven. Is that something you can say amen to in your heart? Is that something that you can praise Jesus for? But see, we get into the problems of life, and we start to see this massive problem, and we forget the real problem that we had, that we were sinners and our real problem of sin, and Jesus has already come when dealt with the solution for that sin. He is a sacrifice. But we forget about that, don't we? And we totally ignore all of the amazing things that he's done for us. But see, it's not just in our past. What about our present? What is it that Jesus is currently doing in you and through you? Are you praising him for that? What about in your future? Because as Paul said in in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm confident that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. God's not done with you. Are you spending your energy and, and your emotion on praising Jesus or protesting the problems? Now, as Paul calls you and I to live this praise-filled life, and by the way, it's a lifestyle. It's not just praises, snippets here and there. It is a constant lifestyle of rejoicing in Jesus, focusing on Jesus. As he calls us to this lifestyle of praise, I want you to be reminded of his current situation. He's under house arrest. You see, what Paul is saying to you and I is we can praise even in the midst of our prisons. He is proof that this is possible. He's not just preaching some principles to the church and saying, you know what, I haven't been able to do this in my life, but this is what God wants you to do. Good luck. He's saying, I'm actually living this out. I'm being a living testimony to God's truth in my life. And you and I, as we praise in our prisons, are a testimony to God's truth to the people around us. You see, what Paul is saying here is that it's really hard to lose hope when you're rejoicing in Jesus. And I think many of us, we lose hope because we stop focusing on him. And we stop focusing on his presence and his peace and his power in our life. And we start giving priority to the problems of this life. Paul is saying this, it is impossible for you and I to have mouths filled with complaints and criticism when they're filled with praise. Are you going to speak truth? Are you going to spend your time praising Jesus or pouting over the problems? You see, here's the question that we need to ask ourselves today. Are you celebrating based on your salvation or your situation? Because here's the thing. Your situation will change, but your salvation won't. And for some of you right now, you're, you're, you're celebrating over your situation because things are going great. But what's going to happen when that changes? 
And so I want you to start to find your joy in Jesus and and not in stuff and not in situations and not in the seasons that you go through. Paul reminds us here of truth, basic biblical doctrine. And he says this, I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. There's a purpose behind it. And what's at stake here is walking with Jesus. He's not saying you're going to lose your faith, but you might get to that place in your life where you kind of have that attitude of, well, if this is what it's like to be a Christian, I'm going through hard things, punt this, I'm just going to quit. Right? Now, do you notice here that Paul is repeating basic biblical truth? Why is Paul repeating stuff? Why doesn't Paul just say, look, I've already preached on this, you already heard it, I don't need to talk about it again. Because what happens when you and I aren't reminded? We forget, right? And when we forget about the truths of the faith, it's not long before doubt and discouragement start to creep into our lives and we start to question things that we don't need to be questioning. Now, Paul here understands the power of repetition. Motivational speaker Zig Ziglar said this, Repetition is the mother of learning, the father of action, which makes it the architect of accomplishment. But you see, it's not just repetition. It's what are you reminding yourself of? Paul's not just saying things to say things. He's reminding us of truth. And you and I need that that constant reminder of truth in our lives. Why do you and I need the truth of God's word? to constantly be in our minds? Well, let me ask you this. How often are you exposed to the lies of Satan and society? On a regular, constant, bombarding situation, right? And if that's happening to you constantly, then here's the question. How often do you need to hear the truth of God's word? And what most of us are doing today is we, we're stepping out and we're not really, truly allowing ourselves to hear the truth of God's word, but we're stepping out and listening to all of these lies. You see, what Paul is basically doing here is Paul is like a parent that's just constantly telling his kids to brush their teeth. Why? Why do we do that as parents? Why don't we just tell our kids one time, like when they're five years old, brush your teeth or they'll fall out? That wouldn't be parenting, right? That wouldn't be caring because we understand that we need that repetition because what would happen if our kids didn't brush their teeth? They're going to deal with decay, right? And what happens in our lives when we don't safeguard ourselves with the truth? There's decay. You see, there's the sticky plaque of lies that wants to get into the crevices of your life and cause cavities. And so you and I need to ask ourselves the question, how often am I brushing my life with truth, God's truth? Am, am I flossing my faith or am I okay with truth decay? And I wonder how many of us have truth decay in our lives today and, and we're compromising certain things in our life. Now, my wife for Christmas bought me an electric toothbrush. And some of you are thinking, well, she's probably trying to gently and lovingly communicate you have bad breath. Okay, so I got her a vacuum cleaner. Maybe I'm trying to communicate that... I'm kidding, I didn't do that. Some of you have those kinds of passive-aggressive marriages, right, where, where you don't have honest conversations.
had one, and she kept talking about how clean her teeth felt, how much better she felt like they were being brushed. And, and the dentist, when she went to the dentist, said, man, whatever you're doing, keep doing that. you got great teeth. And I thought, man, I ought to give one of those a try. And I discovered two very interesting things about this electric toothbrush. The first is that every 30, 40 seconds, it will pulse, and you feel that in your mouth, to tell you to brush all of your teeth, right? Because we have a tendency sometimes to just focus on certain teeth and we miss other ones. And, you know, those teeth right in the back of your skull, they're hard to get to, right? And so sometimes we really don't take much time with those. I think the same thing is true of our life. You see, people notice our front teeth, and so we tend to want to take care of those a little bit more. They're easier to get to, and they're more noticeable when they're not there. And so we care about how we look to people, and so we, we go ahead and brush up that front part of our life, but, but what about the back part of our life? How important are those molars? Well, people can't see them when they fall out, but they're not there just to be seen, right? They're actually there to do a service, to to grind up food so that we can be nourished. And you see, all of us, we have a front side of our life and a back side. We've got a public and a private life. And I think sometimes what we do is we, we really brush up good on our public life so that we look good. But maybe we don't take very much time with our private life because we think no one's going to notice that. It's not really going to matter. But here's the thing. Does it matter if the decay's at the front of your mouth or at the back of your mouth? It's decay, and it'll spread. And here's what you need to understand. What's going on in your private life will show up in your public life, no matter how much you try to brush it up and make it look good. Second thing I discovered about this electric toothbrush is that it has this timer. Again, there's a certain pulse that lets you know how long to brush. And, and it made me brush my teeth longer than I was before. I felt like with my regular toothbrush, that I mean, I was brushing for a long time. It felt that way. Until I actually had something timing me and telling me how long I had been doing it. Which brings up the question, how much time do you devote to truth? God's truth. How much time are you actually allowing God's truth to brush the teeth of your life, so to speak? And I think one of the things that can happen is, is in a very short amount of time, we can become people who just sort of skim over the Scripture. We never really dive deep. And today we talk about having devotions, right? When you're devoted to God. But here's the question. Are you really devoted to God in that time? Because a lot of us, we're, we're trying to read this and the TV's on and there's all these other distractions. We're really not devoted. We're just spending a little time skimming through Scripture, hoping that we lightly brush our lives and it will be able to combat all of the lies of the next 12 hours that we're going to immerse ourselves into. One of the things that all of us, if we're honest, really crave, and that is to look cool. <laughs> Can I just point out the obvious, if you're a Christian, you are never going to look cool in this world. So just relax. Take the pressure off. Stop spending your time trying to look cool. It's amazing to me how we've got to shorten everything, and oftentimes it's to look trendier, to look cool. So what do we do with devotions? 
You know, that's just such an uncool word. What are you doing? Devotions. But if you were to call it devos, now we're starting to turn it into something that's maybe a little cooler. But here's what the reality is most of us have done with our spiritual life. We don't have the length of devotions. We just got a little devo. And so we're lightly brushing our life with truth and hoping that we're going to be able to handle all of the pressures that we're going to go through. So what are some of the truths that you need to hear? For some of you today, you need to hear the truth that your beauty is not based on what society says, but it is based on what the Savior says in His Scripture. You see, what's happened in your life is you have based your looks on what society has to say about you. And so when you look in the mirror, you're incredibly critical. You see all of the faults, right? Oh, I've got this wrong and that wrong. And if only I had straight hair or curly hair or whatever kind of hair. Maybe I just need hair. I don't know. But you see all of the problems, right? And so what you do is you look in the mirror is you don't see the treasure of who God made. You see trash. Why? Because you're listening to trash. You're listening to the lies. And if you listen to lies long enough, you'll live the lies. But if you listen to the trash that, that your image is based on, on what people say instead of your creator and your maker says, then you will start to not only see yourself as trash, you will allow yourself to be treated like trash. This doesn't just break the heart of God the Father. Ladies, those of you who are married, it is hurting the hearts of your husband. Because here's what's happening on, on a semi-regular basis. Your husband is saying to you, baby, you look beautiful. And you're going, whatever. You roll your eyes. You know, you've got that down. I don't know if you're just born that way as ladies or if you have to practice that. But man, you are good at rolling. And what it communicates is, I don't believe you. Right? And some of you, you're like, man, my husband, he hasn't told me that I'm beautiful for a long time. You know why he hasn't done that? Because when he would do that, you'd say, Whatever. You're basically calling him a liar, but here's the thing. Your husband's not lying to you. You are listening to the lies. Some of you, you need to hear the truth that your worth is not based on your work and what you can do. It is based on Christ's finished work on the cross. So how do you and I take truth with us wherever we go? Well, you've got to be in the Word to start with. But you see, this is where it's not just about you being in the Word. It's about allowing the Word to be in you. That's the difference between a surface faith, skimming the Scriptures and diving deeper, to where it goes from you being in the Word to the Word of God being in you. And one of the ways that can happen is memorization. And we don't talk about this a lot anymore in church because it's so hard to do. No, it's not. There there are many of you, if I asked you certain sports stats, you could just boom, 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 boom. you got stuff memorized all over. We can memorize things all day long, but then when it comes to basic biblical truth, we're like, yeah, I can't do that. Sports stats, I can handle. Scripture, no. You can't. And for those of you that do struggle, let me suggest something that's been helpful in my life. And that is... Going through Scripture, and when God really impresses something on your heart, a truth that you need to hear, 
And it needs to go from you just being in the Word to the Word being in you. In other words, it's a truth that you believe here but not here. How do I know when I'm believing a truth here but not here? Here's a subtle hint. When I think, yeah, this is good for other people but not for me. God loves them but but he couldn't love me. It's a head knowledge but not a heart knowing. And one of the things that's been helpful in that is taking those scriptures and either typing them out or writing them out and posting them in prominent places. Like on your bathroom mirror. Because yeah, beauty is not based on what society says, but let's face it, we still have to brush our hair, brush our teeth, and wash our face before we leave the house, right? That's just good basic hygiene. And you and I, as we look at that, can be reminded of those truths. How many times a day do you get into the fridge? Probably more than once. Maybe you need to post some scripture on the fridge that, that reminds you of basic biblical truth and something that you need to hear. Because Jesus said, man doesn't live by food alone, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? So it's not just about you feeding your flesh, but it's also about feeding your faith. And, and so when you're opening up the, the fridge, you're feeding your faith before you're feeding your flesh. Let me ask you, do you spend more time feeding your flesh eating or do you spend more time feeding your faith studying the Word of God? That's a challenging question, right? Because I think none of us would say, yeah, but I'm not willing to give up a meal. And yet we're snacking on Scripture instead of really having a true meal. Do you know the purpose of food? It's to fuel you so that you can do what God's called you to do. And here's what a lot of us are doing today with food. We're eating for a feel-good, not for fuel. And the reason that we don't feel good we're listening to lies and not to the truth. And for some of us, like, well, I just need this big diet plan. Maybe you just need more time in God's Word. Let's talk about those caffeine Christians. You know who you are, you coffee Christians. You believe you need Jesus, but you also need a little Java just to get through the day, right? So what if you took truth and you post it to your coffee maker, whatever style coffee maker thing you have? We're not going to do a debate over that, but... That's outside of my realm of theology. But whatever kind of coffee you like, right? What if you took truth and you posted it there? So first thing in the morning, what do you typically do? Oh, I got to have my coffee first thing. Why isn't the first thing, man, I got to have Christ. I got to have the word. I need Jesus. But we've replaced that, right? Now, you coffee people aren't the only ones that have your addictions. There's those rare born-again British believers, you know, you believe in truth and tea. And so maybe for you, you need to go tape that to your teapot and be reminded of here's what's really true. What about those of you that drive to work? Some of you that have to commute and, and your job is you've, you've got to go fairly long distances. You're in a vehicle a lot. You're driving people around. Whatever it is that you're doing, what if you were to post that there? How many of you, and you don't have to put your hand up, how many of you think you look at your cell phone less than 10 times a day? How many of you think you look at it 50 times a day, maybe 100 times? You should count sometime. You'd be, you'd be surprised, maybe a little scared. 
But what if you were to go ahead and put God's truth on that screen so that the first thing that popped up when you looked at it wasn't what's the Facebook message, what's the text message, what's the way, it's truth. Why does this matter? Because you and I are either going to listen to the joy builder of truth or the joy robbers of lies. Second thing he gives us here is a caution, and it's a caution against these wild, dangerous dogs. You see, it's not just that you and I need to be aware of false teaching. We need to be aware of the false teachers that are teaching it and the many ways in which they do that. And we tend to think that they're all outside. But there are false teachers that are inside. We talk about being Bereans. It comes out of Acts 17, 11. The Bereans were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians, and they studied the Scripture to see if what Paul was preaching was truth. They didn't just say, okay, it's Paul. We can just believe whatever he tells us. They said, okay, is this true doctrine or is this, this a dog that, that's really just coming to bite us with something that's going to hurt our lives? Now, here's the thing. The way that you and I protect ourselves against the, the wolves is with the Word. The more you are in the Word of God, the more you will be aware of the wolves that want to distort or dilute the Word of God. This is basic Bible doctrine. And what we've done in the church today is we said, man, I don't need basic Bible doctrine. That is so boring. Well, it's really boring until you get bit because you don't know the basics. You see, when Paul was talking about these dogs, he's not talking about playful puppies that we just kind of want to go up and pet, right? That are cute. These are these mangy mutts that, that would scavenge outside the city and they would scavenge on these trash piles. You see, what they were feeding themselves was not healthy, was not good. They were taking in the trash and therefore they were putting out trash. And they were going around, and it wasn't just that they would bark at people, they would bite people. But see, here's the real danger. It wasn't just that they were dangerous dogs, they were diseased. And so when they bit you, they they infected you with that disease. And there's a lot of disease doctrines that are out there today that that are poisoning people's lives and killing people. Paul here talks about circumcision. And here's what's crazy. This has to do with legalism where you and I replace a relationship with the Lord with rules. You and I, as we look at this, understand 2,000 years ago that there were people who were saying, you need Christ's finished work on the cross and circumcision. Does that sound crazy to you? Like, like, seriously, what are you going to add to Christ's finished work on the cross? Either Jesus Christ came and finished the work or he didn't. Now, he said he did. It is finished on the cross, right? And then he proved it by being seated at the right hand of the Father. You don't sit down if you're not done. But Jesus Christ proved that it is absolutely finished. I don't think there's a single one of us in here, if we had a wild dog doctrinal preacher show up to try to infect us with his dangerous disease, and he said, you need to get circumcised and accept what Christ did on the cross, we'd laugh him out of here. But can I share with you a disease doctrine that many people are buying into today? You need Christ's finished work on the cross and baptism. People are buying into that. 
Let me tell you something. Baptism is not what saves you. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that saves you. And anytime we add other things to Christ's finished work, we're saying Jesus was not enough. Jesus is all we have. There's nothing that you and I can add to that. And so what happens is we're plunged into this performance-driven life of legalism where all of a sudden the Savior is replaced with self and what I'm going to accomplish. And we trade God's gift of grace for our good works. Now, church, we are called to serve. But we are saved to serve. We don't serve to get saved. And there are many of us today that are buying into these bogus beliefs. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? What was he talking about, heavy laden? Legalism, rules. And he was saying, look, you trade that for a relationship. And I want to ask you, is your life rule-driven or relationship-driven? Are you reading your Bible because you have to, because it's a rule, or because you love Jesus and you want to spend time with him because you care about the relationship and you want to cultivate that relationship? Do you see the difference in the motivation of that? Here's the thing you and I need to understand. Rules without relationship always lead to rebellion. Paul had been freed from the prison of legalism. And he said, I'm walking in freedom. I'm not going back to trying to live up to the law. And so if you have been saved, let me encourage you, walk in the freedom of your faith. You see, it's also here that he also talks about their discernment. And he says this about them, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. One of the biggest joy robbers is you and I constantly questioning our salvation. Do you notice here he talks about that security of knowing that it's not an outward act. It's an inward thing. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's the reality that you can't come to Jesus Christ and not be changed. But there are a lot of us that have grown up being taught another disease doctrine that you can lose your salvation. That if there's things you do or don't do then you might be out. And what that creates is a fear-based life. And what I want you to really understand is there are churches, okay, we tend to think these dangerous doctrines are just out there with some whack cult leader. These are things that are happening in the church. They were happening 2,000 years ago, and they're still happening today. And there are churches that are saying, yes, you got to depend on Jesus, but you also have to get baptized. And by the way, you might lose that salvation if you don't maintain it. You and I can't attain salvation through our own self-effort, and we can't maintain salvation. It is either a gift of grace or it's not. You see, it's also here he talks about the dependence. And who or what are they depending on? It says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. The joy robber of depending on self-strength. Can I ask you, what are you depending on today? Are you depending on Jesus? I know a lot of Christians that are trying to do the Christian life in their own strength. And one of the interesting things about those kinds of Christians is they have very little joy in their life. Why? Because they've made the Christian life a job, not a joy. Because it's not really truly following Jesus in a relationship. It's just following a bunch of rules. And it's exhausting. And there's no joy in that. 
And so I want to ask you, what are you depending on? Who are you depending on? Because out here, we, we're pretty independent, right? And sometimes we can be that way in our life. It's, it's sort of like, I'm really dependent on me until I run into a major problem, and then I'll talk to Jesus. But until, until I absolutely can't fix it, I'm not going to really depend on Jesus. Now, here's a more important question than who are you dependent on? Who are you training your kids' parents to be dependent on? Are you training your kids to be dependent on Jesus? Because there's two trains of thought in our country right now that is politically divided. Two political ideologies, neither of which are absolutely biblical. But we'll try to back it up with Scripture. Because we want to defend our position instead of defending Christianity. And the first one is this idea that we depend on society and it's a welfare mentality. The second is we depend on self and it's a work-based mentality. That is, I'm going to be a self-starter, I'm going to be a hard worker, I'm going to be the one that makes it all happen, right? And boy, does that sound biblical until you understand that we were created to worship first and then to work. That our worship is what fuels our work. Now, how, if we raise kids to completely depend on themselves and we ingrain in them, everybody else will let you down and you are dependent on you and you alone. Do you think we're going to raise a generation of worshipers or just a generation of workers? The church needs a generation of worshipers of Jesus Christ. That's the crisis in our country today. It's not a work crisis It is a worship crisis that we are going through right now. Because here's the thing. If our kids grow up to be workers and not worshipers, they will not be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And and there will be no missionaries that go out from the church because they will be just wrapped up in self. And so I want to encourage you. How do you and I help our kids to become dependent on Jesus? Well, we've got to model it for them. And one of the best ways to show your dependence on Jesus is prayer. Because prayer doesn't just bring you into his presence. It reminds you of his power. As Corey Tim Boom said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is it just sort of your backup plan when you can't fix things? Or is it your everyday dependence on Jesus? You see, it's also here that Paul gives us a word of correction because he reminds us that there are people that think that they can save themselves through their own effort. That you and I can somehow do more good things to outweigh the bad things. And what Paul's saying here basically is, look, if anybody could have saved themselves, it would have been me. He's not being prideful. He's just saying, I did everything I could to merit God's favor and it wasn't enough. Why? Because all of my works are just filthy rags in the presence of God. I need to rely on Jesus Christ's righteousness. And this is another one of these deadly doctrines where we start believing that that we're good enough to get into heaven if we do the work ourselves. And so I want to ask you, has there been a point in your life where you have admitted your sin before God? Because the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin are death. And we, you can't just do a bunch of good things to outweigh that. 
You've got to deal with the consequence of sin, and that is an eternal separation from God for all eternity. But there is a solution, and that is Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. So I want to ask you, has there been a point in your life where you have cried out for Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? Or are you still trying to depend on your good works instead of God's grace? Now, Paul reminds us of three things about himself here. The first thing he says is his ability. Second, his identity. Third, his loyalty. When he talks about his ability, he says, I could have, uh, I, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. This is the joy robber of you and I trusting in our ability instead of trusting in the Almighty. Now, God has given you an ability. But if you're not careful, you will start to worship your ability and not worship the Almighty. How do you know when you're starting to worship your ability? Well, what do you talk about? What you can do or what God does? And here's what happens with most of us. We walk into a situation of new people. First thing that we want to tell people is who we are, what's our name, what we do, and what we know. And rarely is the what we know Jesus because we're afraid. Again, we want to look cool. We, we, we want to be popular. And so we, we don't walk in and say, hey, I'm Giles. I'm a born-again believer. And what I know is Jesus died for me. Because you'd look like a weirdo if you did that, right? But what's Jesus called us to do? Talk about him. And so I want to ask you, are you, are you starting to worship your ability instead of the Almighty. Secondly, he says this, his identity, and it's amazing. Listen to this identity. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. In other words, I'm not a half-breed. I wasn't married into this. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees, and I demanded the strictest obedience to Jewish law. This is where the joy robber of you and I trying to find our identity and our work instead of the one that we worship. And what he's basically doing here is he's saying, hey, take a look at my religious resume. And I'm telling you, you are never going to have as good a religious resume as Paul did. Man, I read that and I'm like, yep, I'm out. I don't got nothing. But isn't it amazing how much time we spend trying to build our religious resume to look good to God? Here's what you need to understand about your religious resume. It's, It's filthy rags. I mean, he had the right pedigree. He had the right heritage. If anybody could have merited favor with God based on a religious resume, it was Paul. And he said, you know what? It's not about your religious resume. It is about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that free? That you aren't aren't having to, to somehow go on a missions trip to earn God's favor. You're not having to read your Bible so he'll love you. It is all based on grace. You're getting to do those things because you love God and you're in a right relationship with God. And then he talks here about his loyalty. He says, I was so zealous, I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. The joy of trying to find your satisfaction in your success instead of in your Savior. What was the result of all of Paul's success? A lot of people suffered. People went to prison. People were stoned to death. If that's what success looks like for Christians, I don't want to be successful. And I think we've, we've got to come to a point where we understand that success is servanthood. Where we get to the bottom of the pile, where we become the least. Because here's the thing, some of us in our pursuit of being successful are causing a lot of people around us to suffer. Some of you dads, you are gone all the time working to be successful. 
and your kids are suffering. They don't even know who you are. They don't know that you love them. They really, when was the last time they got a hug from you? You come home and you're exhausted. You have no energy for them because you're pouring everything into success and what you're actually creating is suffering. And so I want you to, to, to take a look at what, what is real success in your life. It's being a servant of Jesus Christ. You see, the last thing that Paul talks to us about here is the cost. There's some things that we've got to give up if we're going to come to Christ. And the first thing he had to give up is his prestige among the Jews, the Jewish leaders. Paul had a very powerful position. He was a very successful Pharisee. He was in a position of popularity. And we like to be popular. We like power. We like people to notice us. Some of us are spending more time living to be liked than living to love God. We want to be noticed. And Paul here says, look, I'm freed from the prison of popularity. I don't have to be the most well-known Pharisee. I don't have to be the most well-known preacher. I just got to serve the people that God has given me to serve. And if you and I aren't careful, we will get into these popularity contests in the church. It's not a new problem. We see it in the Bible where I'm following Apollos. I'm following Paul. I'm who's the latest, greatest preacher. Here's something you need to understand about all the preachers that are on the planet. Someday they're going to be dead. You're not called to follow them. You are called to follow Jesus Christ. You see, I wonder how many pastors today are being poisoned by popularity. Where when you get done preaching, those of you that are listening online, you go straight to Facebook because you want to know how many likes and how many shares. But what you didn't do is go to God the Father and say, God, did you like it? You see, there's only one person that matters, and that's God. And you need to filter everything that he has called you to preach. Because what if you preached an amazing message from people's perspective, and it blew up on Facebook, but God the Father was displeased because it wasn't when he called you to preach, and you were disobedient? That's not success. And here's the danger. You and I, in our pursuit of being popular today, especially in the culture, are probably not going to preach the hard truths. And we're going to dilute Scripture. You know why? Because sin is not popular. You know why sin is not popular in our current culture? Because if we really admit that we're sinners, then we've got to talk about the solution to the sin. And we've got to talk about the Savior. And our society does not want to talk about Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful in our pursuit of being popular, we will water down the message. Let me ask you this question. Do you care more about people knowing you or people knowing Jesus Christ? Who do you want to make popular? You see, it's also here that he had to give up persecuting the church in verse 6. We all have pasts, and some of us have very pagan pasts, and some of us have very painful pasts. And what Paul is saying here is we've, we've got to give that up. We've got to let go of it. And there's a lot of Christians that even though they're forgiven, they still live in their failure instead of their forgiveness. It's like the alcoholic who hasn't had a drop for 20 years, and he's going to AA, and he's constantly saying at AA, hey, here's my name, and I'm an alcoholic. Well, if you're a born-again believer, why wouldn't you say, hey, I'm Giles, I'm a born-again believer that struggles with alcohol. Where's your identity? 
And many of us, we, we've allowed ourselves to, to have our identity built on our past and our failures instead of God's forgiveness. Now, we have the privilege of inviting a guy who was a former mob boss for the mafia to come to our community and speak. And we're going to partner with a business in gearing, and they're using their resources to be able to share Christ with a community. And so I want you to watch this little quick video with me. Making the most money for the mob since Al Capone, Michael was the youngest person listed on Fortune Magazine's 50 Most Wealthy and Powerful Mob Bosses. Now, as one of the only guys from that list still alive, Michael has transitioned from powerful mob boss to now speaking in front of thousands of people each week. A lot has changed these past 20 years, but it's safe to say that Michael Franzis is a man on a mission. Now, the reason that we're asking him to come to our community is because there's a lot of people, as you share Christ with them, they're like, yeah, I can understand Jesus could save you. You're a pretty good person, but you don't understand my past. You don't understand what I've done. And all of a sudden, when you hear this guy's testimony, you suddenly realize, man, if God can save him, God can save anybody. And so I want to ask you this question. Who do you know right now that doesn't know Jesus? Would you be willing to invite them to come? And here's what we're doing. There's absolutely no cost. This business and a couple of others that have jumped in are covering absolutely every cost that he has. And here's why. We're not selling tickets because we don't want anything to prohibit anybody from being able to come and to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We're also doing it at the Midwest Theater because some people won't come to a church. And here's the beauty of this. As you think about that person, and most of you right away had somebody on your mind. And by the way, if you're at a place you're like, I don't know any unsaved people, you need to start being light and salt. It is great for you to have Christian friends, but you can't stay in your little Christian bubble. You need to go share Jesus with people. And so as you think about those people, what if you were to just simply say to them, hey man, do you hear about that event that they're doing at the Midwest Theater and they're bringing in that former mob boss from the mafia? I was kind of wondered a little bit about that whole deal and what they do, what, what really goes on. Anyway, he's going to be sharing and uh, some business is sponsoring it, whatever. Would you come with me? You see, you and I, if we're not careful, we will get so caught up living life that will forget who we're living for, and that is the Lord and pointing people to Jesus. Paul here reminds us that in his past, he persecuted the church. Why? Because they were destroying his way of life. And if you and I aren't careful as a church, we will let that same messed up mentality enter into the church where we get caught up in trying to preserve a way of life instead of proclaiming the Lord of life to those who are lost in life. To where we start to fight more for our country than we do for the cause of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of us that we are spending huge amounts of energy on politics today, but we are not proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. 
do you think we're here to save America or to save Americans? We don't have a political agenda. We have an agenda of peace, and there's only one way that we can bring peace, and that is to introduce people to Jesus, the peacemaker, the one who allows people to go from war with God to peace with God. How much time do you spend listening to cable news and how much time do you spend listening to the good news? The good news of the gospel. And I think one of the things that's happened in the church today is we have gotten ourselves all bent out of shape and emotionally upset and fired up and angry, but we're not fired up over the right things. We're not fired up over the gospel because we are listening to what's going on in the world news instead of being a witness to the good news. You and I, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have to stop walking by feelings. And many of us need to understand that we are going to get hurt in this life, but we're called to walk by faith, not by feelings. And so when people hurt you, faith says you need to forgive But what many of us are doing today is saying, but you don't understand the hurt in my life. I'm going to walk by my feelings, and therefore, I'm not going to forgive. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to be resentful, and I'm going to have a heart filled with hurt and hate. Do you think there's going to be any room for joy in there? No, because there's no room for Jesus in there, because you're not willing to be obedient to what he's called you to do. And that's why for some of you today, you're walking around these joyless lives, but here's the thing. You're thinking, but, but I can't forgive them. That's not fair for them to be forgiven. Well, let's talk about fairness. Was it fair for Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin? Church, we are not following a belief based on fairness, but based on faith. And if it's based on faith, it has to be based on forgiveness. So why'd God get you here today? Maybe for some of you, you need that comforting counsel that, that you need to be careful to flash your faith so that you don't end up with truth decay in your life. Maybe for some of you, you needed that warning of that caution of those dangerous doctrines that want to disease your life. Maybe for some of you, it's the correction of, hey, I can't save myself through good works. It has to be resting on Jesus Christ. Maybe for some of you, you need to be reminded of some things that you've got to give up, that there is a cost in coming to Jesus Christ. But whatever it is that the Spirit of God's been speaking to you, don't walk out and ignore that. You see, today we have the opportunity to take communion together. You don't have to be a partner. You don't have to be a member. We just simply ask that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and that you are right in your relationship with Him and relationship with other people. And if there is unforgiveness in your life, you need to make that right first. So I'm going to pray, and then I invite you to come. Father, thank you for this time in your Word. And I just pray that as we take communion, that you would remind us of the incredible cost, that it cost your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us not to take that for granted and help us not to forget. But we do this often. We, we are repeating it to remind ourselves of the truth. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.